Strange Brews is supported by Goose Island Beer Company. Since 1988, Goose Island has constantly innovated how and what they brew and introduced numerous award-winning beers, including their barrel-aged stouts and ales. Goose Island, to what's next? That's at gooseisland.com. Home brewing was technically illegal at that time, but, you know, so was a lot of stuff that we were doing. Come on, Joe, let's have that beer, Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Why do you want that beer so bad? Because he's thirsty, dummy. Cheap beer and a sympathetic ear. Step right up. What kind of beer? What kind of beer do you like? Dad, Bob broke your beer, so I did Doug broke it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Allison Cuddy. And I'm Andrew Gill. Today, we talk with Tim Matson, the author of what I call the anarchist cookbook of beer, um, Mountain Brew. It was a guide to illegal home brewing that's celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Right, back when home brewing was illegal in the uh, mid-70s. Yes. And then we also have an interview with uh, the folks at Scratch Brewing, one of those breweries in Illinois that we always wanted to visit. Um, and I think it might be the most interesting brewery in Illinois. It's in Ava, Illinois, and their name gives you a hint as to why they're so interesting. They make everything from scratch, but they um, they scratch the soil for it. They do a lot of foraging to find the ingredients for their beer and their food. Yeah, so they'll be on the show a little later. Um, but uh, first, let's open up a beer to uh, fuss over and dissect. Right. Um, this beer will be familiar to listeners of Strange Brews, although it's a variation on a theme. It's the Dinosaur Beer from Off Color Brewery. What more appropriate beer for the last Strange Brews? And I think John Laffler really outdid himself with this um, beer label art. <laughs> the little dino mouse warming itself by the fire. A little cup of steaming something in its hands. Probably coffee, because this is made with coffee. Yes. This is the coffee dino s'mores. Coffee so. dino s'mores. It's made with quasar coffee, although when I first read it, I just read a secret ingredient, quasars. <laughs> um, so we don't have fussy beer music this week, but we do have a few calls from listeners. Aww. I thought we'd play this call, and maybe we'll have some stuff to talk about in response. Uh, this is Rich Bray. I'm a fan member, but I can't remember my number. Uh, did you guys really say uh, that you're no longer going to continue the podcast or it was just you're just ending a season and then starting up again um, could you clarify I hope it isn't uh, because I really 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 enjoy the show um, went to a couple of your live events and uh, this is a, a jewel in the WBEZ crown we don't want to let it go I give 40 bucks a month to BEZ and uh, Totally believe in public radio. At the next episode, please uh, please clarify what you're meaning. It's because I, I really hope the show goes on and on and on. Uh, I don't see any reason to 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 end it. It can go on for years because the the topic is, is going to evolve. Um, thank you, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, Rich Bray. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks for all the support. Um, and yes, apologies for not being clear about what what the future is. But I think we're just figuring that out ourselves. Yeah. We um, last episode we dropped the uh, information that it would be the our second to last episode. We didn't really know exactly what would be coming. So, uh, but what we can say is that the WBEZ version of the show will be ending. Um, but Allison and I will soldier on 
want to make sure that you guys can find us and find our new project. So um, I've set up a little newsletter. You can sign up. Go to tinyletter.com slash beerpodcast and put your email address in, and then you will be sure to know when we start up our next thing. Um, And we want all of you to come with us and keep listening. There's no reason to stop, Um, especially when there's beers as good as this coffee (laughs) dino s'mores to be had. It's such an interesting aroma. It's not with all the ingredients, marshmallows and coffee and cocoa nibs, you would expect a much sweeter, but it doesn't have that profile at all. Yeah, it's um, it gets you with the coffee right away. Mm-hmm. It's like satisfies the little bit of the sweet tooth, and then it just kind of recedes in a very gentle, uh, soft way, and you just have a, a flavor of chocolate. It's and like, you, yeah, it ends with like a sort of toasted marshmallow, caramelly, but then that bitter chocolate note remains, but really mellowed. You're right. Yeah, really, really nice. Um, And of course, one of the reasons I brought this beer today is because one of my favorite memories from uh, doing Strange Brews is the event we did at Off Color Brewing. We had, uh, listeners will remember, we had a pledge drive um, where you could donate to the station and get entered into a drawing, Mm -hmm. and the folks at Off Color kindly donated a uh, keg of dino s'mores and uh, 25 of you guys got to come and drink it at the brewery with us and it was a great time. Yeah, it was great to go uh, support a brewery that we really appreciate um, among the many brewers in Chicago and, and beyond. It was great to bring people there. I mean, Off Color Brewing is in a really small facility in on the kind of near west side of Chicago. Well, west side, not near west side. Um, oh, yeah. Hermosa, west right. of Logan Square. Or the, the western, outermost western uh, edges of Logan Square. Yeah. Um, also known as Hermosa. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it really, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. It was always great to um, hang out with the fans, and we hope to do more of that with like-minded people who like to um, – Dissect beers and while fuss. listening to fussy music. Yeah, fuss over beers while dissecting music or other things. Yes, exactly. So, again, if you would like to uh, know what we do next, go to tinyletter.com slash beer podcast. And, of course, following us on Twitter is a good way, too. But you can miss tweets sometimes. Um, I'm at Andrew Gill. And I'm at Allison Cuddy. Um, And so thanks again. We've got more calls from listeners that we'll hear later in the show. Um, But thanks again to everyone who's made Strange Brews something special. And here's to the end of one era and the beginning of another. Cheers. Cheers. This is the Strange Brews podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and it's time for some beer news. Uh, First off, real quick. Breaking news that Goose Island is going to charge $60 for bottles of Bourbon County Stout Rare uh, in the new smaller size, 16.9 ounces. That's a customized size? Uh, Yeah, like not a very common size. And uh, they've got like new labels, new like I think custom-made bottles that say Bourbon County Stout on them. Did they say anything about why $60? Well, it's the Rare. It's a variety that they haven't done very much Um and I think they charged $40 last time they put it uh-huh. out, um, probably in much larger bottles. But anyhow, um, this is a good lead into a segment we're calling Signs That Craft Beer Is Jumping the Shark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite story um, of the week. Craft beer. 
thank the powers that be, finally has its own cruise. <laughs> yes, been a cruise. waiting. Yes, we've all been waiting anxiously for this. It's the Labruski cruise. And it will feature daily craft beer tastings as well as live performances from over 20 bands from multiple genres of music. Although multiple might be stretching it a little bit. At least two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, are, there are talents from uh, such notable bands from the Southern Rock catalog as Molly Hatchet, the fabulous Thunderbirds. Um, Ricky Medlock of Leonard Skinner fame will be there. And that's the Southern Rock part. Uh, right. Then OAR, the samples. And it's all being organized by a guy from the String Cheese Incident. Oh, it doesn't look like that band is playing on this cruise. Oh, they'll be playing. Hopefully. Oh, come but, on. Uh, Kyle Hollingsworth is going to not. At least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the sponsors for the event, I mean, so our theme this episode is obviously homebrew. It's the American Homebrewers Association and the Brewing Network. And there will be representatives um, from brewers to executives from such notable breweries as uh, uh, Stone Brewing Company, your favorite, Andrew, Cigar City Brewing, mm-hmm. and, of course, Lagunitas, because what um, jam band Southern Rock <laughs> booze cruise to the Caribbean would be complete without a representative of Lagunitas? No, it's not Tony McGee. Um, no. But uh, Boulder Beer Company as well will be on board. Um yeah, this is part of a trend also I've been reading about, you know, people saying brewers are the new rock stars. And I don't know how far that trend is going to last. Ooh. But, um, yeah, it's May 1st kicking off from uh, Miami. It will uh, include ports of call in Nassau and Great Stirrup K. It's the on a Norwegian that, cruise line boat. Right, which cracked me up. This was like the, the, the takeaway for me um, was that the Norwegian – cruise line actually has a private island in the Bahamas, which I'm sure is not they're not the only cruise ship. I just sort of said like, oh yes, of course you'd have to have your own private <laughs> island. But, um, you know, cruises get a lot of bad raps and my, my informants in the industry tell me that's not really fair, that those cruises gone awry, overtaken by various uh, communicable diseases or right. just bad um, you know, like steering, bad <laughs> captaining they're, they're few and far between. So we, we wish this voyage the best. It will take off next May in Miami. Yeah. So um, Early word tickets are gone at this point, but you can still get in on it uh, if you're interested. Here's my final point on it, though. It's called the Labruski Cruise. Yes. Uh, it seems to be an ode to the, the Big, Big Lebowski, Lebowski, who doesn't even drink beer. He drinks white Russians. So I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll that, there is that Pipeworks beer that's... Uh, Hey man, careful! There's a beverage here. That would be a good beer to have right. on this. Well, or even Dunnismore. I mean, it's got yeah. some of the flavor profile of a of yeah. a white Russian. Yeah. Um, the other news story I wanted to mention was a follow up to the uh, dirty lines hashtag uh, thing that set Twitter aflame about yes. six months ago. Um, it was something started by a past guest on Strange Brews, Dan Paquette of Pretty Things Ale Project. Um, he started tweeting about bars in Boston that were getting paid by distributors to put beers on certain lines. And that prompted an investigation by the Massachusetts Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, the MABCC. And they have cracked down on their first guilty party, which is the Craft Brewers Guild distributor. Um, and they have admitted to paying $22,500 to two different restaurant chains in the Boston area in order to carry Yingling. 
when they re-entered the Massachusetts market. Right. And of course, Yingling has said, we knew nothing of this. We I'm were not sure involved they were in totally this. innocent. Completely innocent. <laughs> but I mean, man, tough times, right? Like Yingling, you have to pay to get that on tap. Yeah. Um, you know, there this impacted about 20 bars in the, the area of Boston. This is, you know, the first time that Massachusetts has ever actually brought charges of pay-to-play against a beer distributor. Uh-huh. The first time ever? Ever, yeah. To take their side of it, they're p- saying, hey, why are you going after the smallest distributor in Boston? We know that the big guys are doing even more paying and even worse things. Why are you going after the small guy first? Now, for their part, the MABCC has said that this investigation will continue until every, you know, instance of this practice well, is rooted out. They've got a hold of something and they're not going to let go of it until they, <laughs> they shake down the money tree. Um, it was fascinating, too, that, I mean, it's really only craft beer. Like, if you sell cornstarch or cereal or detergent, you can pay to play. You can give all kinds of things to get your product on the shelf or get it proper placement or special placement, but not with beer. This all has to do with like um, an effort to keep the big um, brewers from taking over everything. Yeah, from prohibition times even uh, and, you know, anti-tide house laws and all that sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. So Mm -hmm. one late night, Dan Paquette was frustrated and went on Twitter and now there is stuff happening in the real world with real consequences. So Good on you, Dan. Yes, uh, good job. And we'll keep watching that to see what happens next. So that's it for Beer News. We'll take a quick break and then come back with our feature interviews. Well, Strange Brews is supported by Audible. They're the world's leading purveyor of audiobooks. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash strangebrews, you can get one free audiobook on us. Uh, one that I think is intriguing is this Tom Robbins book, B is for Beer. Check it out. Uh, also, The Brewer's Tale. Uh, plenty of interesting books on beer that are available there on Audible. Go there, check it out, uh, and get a free book on us. Um, We're also supported by the Arts of Life. That's people with and without disabilities creating an artistic culture to realize their full potential. And they are presenting their seventh annual Charitable Chili Cook-Off. It's going to feature over 20 types of chili, live entertainment, local craft beer, and original artwork. It is Saturday, November 7th at 2010 West Carroll Avenue in Chicago. Details and tickets are at theartsoflife.org slash chili, and I will be there as a judge for the chili cook-off. Judging the chili? Yes. Maybe yes. judging any beer as well? I'll be tasting some beer, but I don't <laughs> think it's a competition over beer. So. Well, head there, November 7th, uh, the Arts of Life Charitable Chili Cook-Off. This is the Strange Brews podcast from WBEZ. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and it's time for our interview with Tim Matson, the author of Mountain Brew. So just to give you a little context, if craft beer had a manifesto and it was written sometime in the 70s in the wilds of Vermont, this is probably what it would sound like. This is about beer, not store-bought, 
Homebrew. Homebrew is alive, like yogurt, but without the strawberries. It's full of vitamins and minerals, and lots of carbohydrates, too. It gives you something to do. Same for those bottles filling up the yard, and that small budget. Or those food stamps that won't buy Pabst. You can bring in a good brew for a quarter a quart. Less if you concoct your own ingredients. For instance, make malt, grow hops, keep a strain of yeast, and pour in homemade maple syrup. Or drink it right out of the barrel draft style. Saves time and caps. And it ends with this claim. Homebrew is a way out. Homebrew is a different story. There really is no choice. Not after you've tasted a good brewer's best beer. So this is all about that. Getting to know a good beer when you brew one. You can learn how to brew an excellent, reliable ale or lager. Just about the color of sunset. And cheap with supplies from the local grocer. No fancy imports. Two pints and you're blissed. And if by chance you overload, relax. Homebrew hangovers are organic. So that's the introduction to the book Mountain Brew, which our guest Tim Matson wrote 40 years ago. Here's our interview with him. How are you, Tim? I'm good. I'm good. Good to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, you are, the, you, you are one of the kings of strange brews. <laughs> All those weird names that you see now. You know, we we uh, were the first. You were the first. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, Barbarous Porter and Bone Beer. I mean, everybody else was Budweiser or Miller, right, or whatever. And now you hear about Arrogant Bastard, and I can't even think of them all. Right. Oh, I mean, nobody knows all the beer names. But that's... we used to have. We used to take pride in coming up with. Strange names, yes. Strange oh, brews, cool. strange names. So, yeah, and this was, so you were a band of, or a merry band of home brewers <laughs> in Vermont in the 1970s, right? Indeed. So can you take us back, if that's one of um, the origins of our current craft beer story? You know, you talk a lot in this guide to home brewing um, that was written at the time of that that scene, yeah. you talk a lot about something being in the air in Vermont. So what was going on in Vermont that made it this home-brewing mecca? A whole lot of back-to-the-land hippies who would flocked up to Vermont to uh, escape what was going on in the country at that time or to invent a new brigadoon. Uh, you know, they had multiple motives, I guess, for for getting up here. Uh, we were all from somewhere else. Most of the, you know, most of us were, you know, what they would call flatlanders or something like that. So we were uh, immigrants, you know, to this beautiful, beautiful place, and it was a very inspiring place that sort of promised us an escape from the insanity that's that was going on in the '70s, including the Vietnam War. Some of us were, you know, army veterans and. Uh, some were escapers from the army, so oh, yeah. you know. And, and then there were girls, uh, a lot of women who were, you know, either uh, paired up with the guys or they had come on their own. So um, they were uh, included in the in the brewing uh, festivities. So, what was the uh, sort of guiding principle of the folks in this group? Like, were you trying yeah, yeah, here, to yeah. build it a was, new world? I, th- I think there was certainly a. a Ambition to create another culture, to create a better culture, to create a new culture. Um, you know, we'd all read the whole Earth catalog. You know, we probably read Mother Earth News. Um, Can you just give us a quick background on, like, the whole Earth catalog? It does seem like a really important text that time, but what was it and why was that important? 
It was basically a giant cornucopia of how-to techniques and implements and tools and, uh, you know, just ways to live self-sufficiently, I guess is a way to describe it. Not necessarily always going to the country, but a lot of it was about going to the country and uh, do it yourself. You know, DIY was the was the mo mm-hmm. for for all of us. You know, it was we were a lot of us bought land that was relatively cheap because it didn't have electricity, so we lived with no electricity. You know, we had you know Aladdin lamps, and um, you know you could find out about how to run Aladdin lamps in the whole Earth catalog. Uh, you could find out how to dig a well. You could find out how to make beer. I think they had some beer making instructions. Although, you know, home brewing was technically illegal at that time, but you know, so was a lot of stuff that we were doing. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think we were too worried about that. So, um, in terms of like, so you're trying to escape a lot of the conditions or the culture that you find yourself in, create a new culture, and so part of the culture you're trying to invent is is beer and is sort of absolutely returns. yeah. I mean. Uh, Sure, it was part of it. Like I said, I was just saying the do-it-yourself thing was was huge. So we built our own houses. There was a lot of home birth um, pioneering going on. Uh, we had gardens for for our food. We raised animals for meat, uh, and uh, you know, chickens for eggs. It was a lot. Of, that was it. You know, it was self-sufficiency. It was back to the land. That was the that was what back to the land really meant. It was uh, you know, live on your own and. It brought a lot of us together. There was a tremendous sense of community that uh, I remember. I, you know, we were all in the same boat, so to speak. So we hung out together and learned from each other and helped each other raise uh, barns and houses. The community thing was really big, and the beer fit into that perfectly because we, we were, you know, we were sort of provocateurs in a way. So mm-hmm. we were, t- you know, with everything we did, we made crazy houses. Uh, some of them were even underground and. Uh, Home birth was pretty pretty wild thing to do, and um, dropping out, you know, was tune in, turn on, drop out, like Timothy Leary said. Beer was part of it because a lot of us had tasted better beer abroad, perhaps. You know, some people had been to England and had, you know, pub uh, ales, and uh, some of us knew the difference between St. Pauli Girl or Beck's and Budweiser, some people might have, you know, had a chance to sample the last of the dying breweries, the small ones that were just uh, fading away in, in some places, like there were a few in Pennsylvania. And uh, in the same way that we recognized that homegrown food tasted better than stuff bought at um, whatever supermarket you might have gone to in the past, we knew that there was a, a better beer that must, must be possible to make yeah, and uh you guys did not like big beer right i mean if you were sort of anti-establishment part of the establishment was like the budweiser or other absolutely i mean there was something of a paranoia about what was really in the beer or it was just an anger because uh, some people were some of us were chemists or, or scientists who knew what was in the beer as preservatives and uh if I remember right, one of the guys in the book, who was a genius, uh, who had actually invented a, one of the earliest synthesizers, he told us that there was cobalt in Coors beer, or maybe we already knew it or heard it. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in the grapevine 
about what crap was in beer, and, uh, you know, we didn't want to drink it, just like we didn't want to eat a lot of stuff that was full of pesticides or whatever was being sprayed on, on the food that we were eating also. So that's why we grew, grew our own food, and that's part of the reason that we made our own beer was to make a clean brew, yeah. Yeah, and so at, at some point, you and your co-author, Leanne Dor decided to put together some of these recipes and make uh, a kind of pamphlet, sort of like short book about how to do it yourself to kind of yeah. encourage more people to brew. So let's talk a little bit about some of those recipes and like... Um, <laughs> and and well, what they okay, yeah. what they tasted like actually because I, I have tried to imagine what they might have tasted. Like. Well, they were pretty rank in a way. Some of them were okay. <laughs> um, we didn't have a great uh, choice for ingredients because uh, home brewing was illegal at the time. Um, you know, after prohibition, uh, you know everything was illegal, uh, and then after prohibition, for some reason, winemaking was was made legal again, but. Um, and I wonder why, but beer making was kept as a prohibited activity. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, legalized again. It, it remained illegal. Uh, it remained illegal till good old Jimmy Carter uh, in 1979 finally got rid of that. But yeah. this was before 79, so we were doing something technically illegal. And you know, where were you going to get the ingredients for it? Well, here's what we did: we went down to the general store and we bought cooking um, malt. It was there was a, a brand of malt called Blue Ribbon uh, Malt, which was uh, actually hopped and had some hop flavor, and, and you know that was supposed to be good for your cake. But it was a trick because blue, you know, blue perhaps Blue Ribbon, you know, which had gone you know um, to sleep during Prohibition, uh, you know, kept some some money coming in by selling malt to uh, you know to housewives in their kitchens or to whoever wanted to cook. So, but they knew that people were using the malt also for brewing, so they put some hops in it, and, you know, ostensibly it was for cooking, but we, we knew that it was actually good for making beer or okay. I also recall that we, we, we used uh, Fleischmann's bread yeast for the yeast. <laughs> So that you could go to the general store and you, and then we would get like pounds and pounds of sugar. And so, like, you know, that's what the basic thing was. It was blue ribbon, malt, sugar, and Fleischmann's bread yeast. A lot of sugar. I was struck oh, by that. Yeah. I don't know anything about home brewing. I mean, my co-host it, Andrew does, but I've never home brewed. But I was like, really? Yeah, it was horrible. It was, <laughs> you know, it was it was a way to get the alcohol up. It yeah, was, you know. Uh, as one of the guys in the book says, you know, he came from West Virginia where they had the uh, old-fashioned 3-2 law, so, you you know, the, the beers were very low alcohol, and that wasn't his cup of tea, so to speak. <laughs> so he was really eager to j- jack up the alcohol content and the cheapest way, and it's also about money. I mean, ch- sugar was cheap, so instead of paying, you know, more for a malt, um, fancy malt, the blue ribbon style, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you just pour sugar, <laughs> pour sugar in. <laughs> but if you, when you when you look at the book, you also see that there was an awful lot of other kinds of ingredients that we used. I think we were, incre- I think we were pioneering adjuncts or whatever you call them, just flavorings. Because, uh, for instance, Martha in the book uses uh, everything from wormwood to postum and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, 
Leanne talks about uh, putting a chicken bone in or a steak bone. Steak and, bone, uh, yeah. You know, um, local hops. You know, we'd go searching for local hops. People use citrus, uh, either oranges or lemons. I mean, we were using a lot for flavoring. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that people are doing all over the place now, which you guys were just coming up with on your own, kind of yeah, with yeah. no context of that happening commercially. That's... Yeah, I don't know. You know, I really don't know where all these ideas came from. I mean, it might have been just in the air, because it seems like we channeled the future craft beer thing, you know, somehow. I don't know how, but so many of the things that we did would come come to fruition, you know, later on down the road. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I really appreciate in everyone's, because you, you feature a lot of different homebrewers, you know, you talked about the community that you gathered, and definitely there was not a like-mindedness in that community. Everybody had their own kind of perspective, their own way of doing things, whether it was like sanitation techniques. Some people used bleach. Some people said, ah, oh, you know, maybe I'll rinse it out. Maybe I won't. <laughs> but um, you were sort of a bit irreverent about this whole process. It wasn't precious in any way. Right. Yes, we were irreverent and, uh, you know, ill-disciplined, probably, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You were meeting a basic need. Right. Exactly. We did what, you know, needed to be done. We brewed to drink. And we will drink spillage. We will drink spillage. (laughs) And we will drink, uh, you know, we'll drink short of uh, of bottling. And and we will, you know, rush the process if we can. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Did you ever um, taste uh, your beers and think, oh, this is just as good as that beer we had in Europe? Or, you know, did you ever get close to that? That's a good question. Um, I think that it was so special. You know, at one point, Sid in the book says you just can't get get over that canned malt taste. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So, you know, there was a certain taste that, you know, kind of kept us from reaching the pinnacles of of brewing stardom or whatever. But I think we understood that it wasn't, you know, going to be maybe as good as as Bass or Watney's. But, you know, the fact that we made it and that it was, and and the water was so good, a lot of the, a lot of the quality of the homebrew was in the spring water, Mm -hmm. which in Vermont, you know, is magical. So there was a clean taste to it, which, you know, um, also made us feel like we were drinking something good. So, I mean, we certainly didn't think we were drinking Guinness Stout. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about when the book left your hands. Um, how did it spread out into the world and, uh, you know, spread its influence? Well, um, I have no idea, really, because uh, it just uh, it mostly went into... Um, New England health food stores, bookstores, whatever influence it had, it it, it did, you know. And, and we never, I never heard back from anybody because I don't think, well, actually, I did hear from a few people. Um, did you have mail service back there off the grid? <laughs> <off the, laughs> we had a we had a stagecoach come by every, every week. <laughs> no, one day a guy showed up at my door. And knocked on the door, and he, I said hi, and he, and it was a fellow named Stephen Morris, who was embarking on a cross country trip to visit all the, the last of the of the small breweries because he knew it was a dying species, and he wanted to see the breweries that still existed. 
and this was in um, early 80s. And he had Red Mountain Brew. He was from southern Massachusetts, so so our books had gotten that far. And we did have accounts. You know, I had established accounts, you know, across the country just by mail, and so a few were here and there. But here this guy shows up, and, and he asked to do an interview because he loved the book, and he feels like it's it's in the spirit of what he's kind of doing, which is going around the, the whole country with his wife and his dog, and they're, you know, doing interviews, and it's a wonderful book called The Great Beer Trek, and I recommend it. It's a lot of fun, and you get to see what the status of, of beer making was like just before craft beer really got going. It struck me, I mean, that was a great story in the book, and, um, you know, that, that sense of something going away, right? At the same time, you're trying to bring it back, like the two things are happening, and there's something about the book, like there's a chapter on the flood of 76, and I think you guys brewed a beer name for that, right? Absolutely. But I'm reading it, and I'm like thinking, okay, this is a guide to home brewing, but I mean, this is a, a kind of a mystical narrative about Leanne or someone or you know being displaced by the flood. It, it's almost like a piece of fiction. Or... Well, it is. It's a short story, and yeah. actually, I, I've, I've described it to people as uh, uh, waiting for Godot with beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to do something when you're waiting for the beer, right? <laughs> exactly, and you you know sometimes you have these existential conundrums, you know, fl- flying through your head and. You know, we were all wondering what we were doing, not just with beer, but with our lives, you know. So most of us were dead broke, and we were, you know, if if, the, if we didn't fix the car, uh, you know, we hitched. So that story captures the kind of, in a way, the desperate feeling that, that some of us also lived with, which was, uh, well, this is great, you know, but wh- how do we... You know, how do we survive? Yeah. You know, um, there was another book. Which made the beer so much, you know, so necessary. <laughs> right, yeah. right. <laughs> it, took the, it took the edge off. <laughs> <laughs> the anxiety was, yeah, exactly. just cut. Um, you know, I was going to say there's an, another book that came out a little bit after yours uh, by a guy named Charlie Papazian, The Complete Joy of Home Brewing. Sure. And that guy has gone on to become quite, famous and just, you know, presided over the Great American Beer Festival out in Denver uh, with the Brewers Association. Right. And, you know, beer has exploded so much now that there are, you know, uh, licensed and legal uh, homebrew supply stores all over the place, at least in Chicago. Um, there are you know, people, there are people who are accountants doing homebrewing on the weekend. There are people spending thousands of dollars setting up their basement to be like microbreweries, basically. Yeah. And I wonder, uh, for someone like you, if you look at this activity, is there still an element of like the mystical revolutionary spirit that you were tapping into 40 years ago? I have no idea. Because I'm not just not connected with those folks. You know, they're younger. What I appreciate is is when they graduate to to getting their craft beers available. I'm just so knocked out by the kinds of beers that are available now. So in a way, I I see I feel like in our own small way we contributed to the fertility of home brewing as an activity back then, and then that led a lot of people to take it a step further to get into commercial brewing. Brewing, I guess that's the way I feel uh, 
a spiritual kinship with with home brewing. Um, although it's it's not so much with the kids that are home brewing today. It's more the I feel a kinship with actually the craft brewers who I know a lot of them started as home brewers, even though they're the establishment now in a way. In a I way, mean, you know, but there's a lot of small breweries in Vermont, it's and they're, some of them are, are pretty small, and, and uh, yeah. you know, their beers don't go very far. Yeah, Vermont, uh, as you point out in the book, um, and we've mentioned before, has you know more breweries per capita than any other state. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, if I can, if somebody wants to credit me with that, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to, um, before we let you go, Tim, you want to, we often ask people for, ask them what they're drinking. Is there anything you want to recommend to our listeners that you've been drinking lately that you love that's from your local Well, scene? I actually, I find that I gravitate toward lower alcohol beer now, um, and I like uh, lager, I like Pilsner, and there's a wonderful brewery up in Stowe, the, the Trap Family Brewery, Sound of Music folks, yeah. <laughs> and they actually make... I think it's kind of barbarian style um, or, or whatever, but they make some wonderful uh, lagers, pilsners, a dunkel. You know, their water is great. They ju- what they're doing just fits me perfectly. And that's the actual trap family, the same ones? Or the, yeah. Wow. You know, yeah. It's the, they, they've kept a lodge up there, for, you know, for, for decades and, uh, have recently, relatively recently, gone into brewing, and, and they really know what they're doing. Wow. Very cool. Another reason to make a road trip to Vermont. I know, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Continue. Thank you so much, Tim Matson, for being our guest on Strange Brews today. Um, and, yeah, here's to happy home brewing. Well, thanks for the invite. I enjoyed it. Great talking with you. So Tim Matson is one of the forefathers of the craft beer movement with his home brewing and uh, back to the land sort of aesthetic. And one of the breweries that's active today that I thought, um, you know, is most likely to be in an area off the grid <laughs> is uh, Scratch Brewing down in Ava, Illinois. We've been so interested in them for years, but we've never been able to make it down there. They're a little bit remote. They're about six hours away. I've heard there's spotty cell phone reception there even. So you're scared to go there? Is that what you're telling us, Andrew? (laughs) (laughs) No, we've been reading about them, and uh, they have uh, some amazing beers that they create through foraging in the woods around their brewery. And so um, maybe keeping this tradition that Tim Mattson represents 40 years ago alive in our contemporary moment. So Scratch Brewery. Here's our interview with them. My name is Marika Josephson. I am one of the owners of Scratch. My name is uh, Aaron Clyden, and I'm one of the owners of Scratch. You guys are just back from the um, Great American Beer Festival. How was it? It was a really good time. It's for a small brewery like us. It's it's really neat when uh, the who's who of the beer community uh, gets to drink your beer. Uh, A lot of those people haven't made it to Ava yet. (laughs) <laughs> and Ava's in southern Illinois. You guys are near Carbondale, or give us a sense of where Scratch lives. Scratch lives about four miles from uh, Ava, Illinois, which is population 600, and it's about 25 minutes northwest of Carbondale. It seems obvious why you would choose such a hot spot of the brewing world to put your brewery, but why don't you explain <laughs> for our listeners who might not get it <laughs> why exactly you opened your brewery where you did? Uh, I would say uh, the reason we are where we are 
we have uh, access to many, many ingredients uh, right there. So that's a lot of the reason. And then also uh, it occurred out of, uh, out of necessity. Uh, my parents had owned the land there, and they, uh, they offered us some land to build on it. It was the best option, and we took a leap of faith that people would actually drive there. And so far, it's, it's worked. Marika, I wanted to ask you, um, so there are a lot of ingredients there that are available, and that has to do with the kind of, I guess, I don't know, the signature of what scratch brewing is, which is that your beer is local in a very, very specific way. Could you talk about that? Yeah, for us, it was really important to uh, create a beer that had a real sense of place. We live in the woods out here, and our brewery is nestled in the in the woods. You know, we're really inspired by a lot of the plants that grow around us. And when we were homebrewing before we opened the brewery, we were experimenting with a lot of different native plants, things that farmers were growing nearby. And we wanted to make a beer that really tasted like that place. So what kind of ingredients have you experimented with? We've tried all kinds of different things. Just this year, we were doing um, a series of beers with different trees and trying to use a whole tree, uh, the leaves, the branches, the bark, berries, if they would grow on them, or sap if the sap was flowing, um, just to see what you know each individual tree would give to a beer. We've done roots of different kinds of plants, flowers, the fruit, mushrooms that mm. grow at different times of the year. Last year, we were doing a lot of different gruits to experiment with different plants and their bittering potential and flavoring potential, you know, when you're using something other than hops. Now, you you brought one of these single-tree beers to GABF, and I right. wonder, are you the only brewery of all the thousands of breweries that is doing a beer like that? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Congratulations! <Four>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we took we took four um, four different single tree beers with us, and then a fifth beer that was uh, that we used the tree in a really different way. Brought a hickory, an oak, a cedar, and a maple. Um, they were all really different beers, and they really showcased the trees in different ways. What was the reaction to them? From like as you as Aaron was saying, the who's who of the beer world to your single tree beers. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, the response to, there was so much buzz about it at the festival. I kind of couldn't believe it. Um, but but people hadn't really tasted anything like it before, and I think it was really intriguing, um, not just to the beer nerds, uh, which it definitely was, and we were so happy to have them come out and try it because it's um, you know it's really really interesting to people who are really into beer, but. Uh, it, it was interesting to people who weren't so into beer, too, you know, I mean, who are there just enjoying themselves and maybe don't know all the details of the process, but just really like the flavors that were coming out of it. What is the flavor? So if you're using different kind of plants or ingredients to create that bitter profile, these are not hop-driven beers or, you know, right. what, what is the flavor? What, what could someone trying your beer expect? Yeah, it's it's all really different. Um so, I mean, for instance, like the, the cedar beer, it does kind of have a flavor that's reminiscent of hops. The, the cedar berries and the branches have a kind of piney and even sometimes kind of like orange 
citrus kind of aroma and flavor. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know what you were drinking, you might even think that it was dry hopped with um, some, you know, really piney American hops or something. Um, so for a lot of people, even, you know, that beer was really uh, popular just because they liked the way that it maybe was reminiscent of hops. Um, but then other ones, um, like the hickory, has a kind of, like, incense, marshmallow sort of smokiness that uh, I don't I don't think anybody's really had before. So uh, it's really interesting, you know, to be able to combine the, those flavors with a stout, which is one of the beers we had, or a sour beer, which, like, I mean, is totally counterintuitive in some ways, like a smoky, incense sour beer. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird, but it works somehow. Where did this... Uh, idea come from for you guys? Because I could imagine, you know, I've gone to some very small brew pubs that are kind of out in the country and, you know, they might do some uh, ambitious beers, but mostly they're, you know, just hitting the normal bases of IPA, amber, blonde, you know. Um, Yeah. Did something happen to you that gave you incredible taste and instincts, or <laughs> like were you bitten by a spider? A or something? Superpowers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we like all kind of like fell asleep one night in the woods and woke up and had like magical superpowers. Uh, I think that you know we all are really inspired by the the just the smells and and I mean feel of being out in nature and. Um, you know, since our, we decided to br- build our brewery on on land that's surrounded by woods, like it's just something that we're inspired by every day. And, um, you know, so often Aaron will go out for a walk. He does most of our foraging and he'll come back with like a handful of different things that are growing. And I mean, we're just excited about the different, you know, smells and flavors and textures and stuff that come back and we'll all brainstorm different ideas you know, talk about different beer styles and how they might work. Uh, and then one of us will just go and run with it and brew it. My grandmother uh, always had a really big garden, and her garden was filled with uh, wild plants, too. She would go out and gather dandelions and make a dandelion salad, even if it didn't taste the best at the time, she would still eat it. I think that was passed down to my mother. So my mother, uh, when I was little, we would go dig plants from different friends' houses and transplant those plants back uh, to her garden. And then ultimately, uh, when I was younger in junior high and high school, uh, in the summer times, I would sell uh, ginseng and golden seal and a bunch of other medicinal herbs to a gentleman who would uh, come around and he would he would buy the herbs and then he would take them to a market, a uh, bigger market up in, uh, I think, St. Louis, I believe. So I was just always in the woods every day. You kind of recognize different smells or certain smells stick out, and uh, the smell of a place is really nice. I'm really interested in making a beer that smells like the forest or smells like the place, and uh, I think we're definitely on the right track. We brewed a beer with uh, dead leaves and carrots, and that beer has been one of my favorites. Wow. And we brewed a forest saison that used a lot of leaves from the the floor of the forest, it really does taste like uh, a handful of uh, soil from the woods. <laughs> in a good way, I'm sure, right? Yeah, in a really, in a really nice way. Uh, I feel like all of our beers, even though they use so many uh, crazy ingredients or 
ingredients that people would perceive as crazy. You would think that the flavors would be uh, over the top, but everything's done uh, very subtle and layered on top of each other. So it's none of the flavors come off as being offensive in any of our beers. That's outstanding. And, you know, I've been trying to schedule a, a trip down. It's about a six-hour drive from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And after, you know, what we've heard about your experience at GABF this year, how long should I expect to wait when I get to your uh, brewery, you know, with the line of beer nerds that are clogging up your parking lot every weekend? Uh, maybe five minutes. Okay. <laughs> it's... uh. Since we are out in the middle of nowhere, it kind of slows up the uh, the mad rush, as you would expect. You shouldn't have to wait too long. Well, it seems like right now is the time to go because it's sort of the undiscovered pilgrimage that folks might want to start <laughs> taking. So um, I'd say act now, listeners. Um, get on down to Scratch Brewing. Check it out while you still can with a five-minute wait because before long, <laughs> it might be... Hours. <laughs> I guess if the if the wait becomes too long, then we'll uh, we'll have to open on Wednesdays. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we might be open six days a week. Perfect. Uh, Thanks, Marika and Aaron. Great talking with you. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you. So yeah. Much. Cheers. So this is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy. And uh, this week, we're not going to do recommendations. It's our final episode. So it is the end of an era. And we wanted to just listen to a couple of calls that we got from listeners and respond, um, answer any questions. So here's the first call we got. Hey, Andrew, Allison, and Tim, the Beer Poet Laureate. Uh, This is Steve in Bristol, Tennessee, fan number 284. I was driving home last night on a road trip, got an alert. There was a new podcast episode, downloaded it, and uh, I think I said, oh, no, when you got to the point about uh, closing up shop on the show. Really appreciated it over the years. Um, and normally when I'm listening, I'm actually at home, not on the road, but I put the kids to bed, and I'm either cooking or doing dishes in the kitchen, listening to the show, you know, crack open a beer and enjoy one along with you guys but i hope the show is not wrapping up for a perceived lack of fan support not really sure what the the factors are going into the decisions there but um when you guys are talking about kind of the end of an era with craft beer i was kind of disagreeing with you and um and then when when the announcement came about the show i thought oh i see you're just trying (laughs) trying to soften the blow of like a you know let us down gentle sort of a thing and not a you or vice versa anyway um but uh yeah i kind of call bs on on that there's still a lot going on there and um my timer's going off sorry making some bread this morning but a couple of questions um and i guess i better go ahead and ask them while there's time um first of all with not your father's root beer did that investigation get concluded um i thought from the last episode about that it sounded like maybe there was still some more information to come um although it kind of sounded like you more or less had to concede that it appears to be some sort of a fermented malt product uh and then the other with the show introduction uh where there's a female voice saying what kind of beer uh question is that allison Gutty's voice it it sounds a lot 
spotlight so I was curious about that that's been something I've wondered as it has come through each episode so thought I'd better ask that while there's opportunity anyway here guys I appreciate the show bye-bye so Allison is that you I wish that's such a compliment, but no. <laughs> what kind of beer? That is actually uh, Kate Hudson from uh, Almost Famous. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, actually, that's not the first time someone has asked if that was you. Um, <laughs> well, me, Kate so. Hudson, we get mistaken for each other all the time. True, it's a common problem. It's from of yours. my uh, major um, episode as a as a rock and roll groupie, you know, <laughs> right? People think that that role was. Model on me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what kind of beer? I don't know. I can't. Yeah. I, no. Now, to answer the question about the Not Your Father's Root Beer investigation, um, yeah, we kind of had to wrap it up. We didn't have the time or resources to keep sending out samples for further tests. But the Brewers Association did confirm for us that they will be investigating the small-town brewery product uh, to determine whether or not small-town brewery will be included in the registry of craft brewers uh, that they will be putting together in January. So watch for that early 2016. So to your other question, we did mention this earlier in the show. We are working on something. We don't want to leave you all out in the cold. Uh, the response has been pretty strong since we announced WBEZ was ending the show. So we are trying to put something else together and to make sure that you know about what that is when we get it together, go to tinyletter.com slash beer podcast and sign up there. Right. Um, it's our newsletter. And yes. it will, it will, you will get the letter when there is news to report. Yes. <laughs> How's that? Trust us. And always, um, if you'd like an official Strange Brews fan number, it's not too late. You can request one by emailing strangebrews at wbez.org. And we also love getting stars and reviews in iTunes, so um, don't hesitate to head over there. Uh, we got one more call to play real quick, and then we'll uh, be on our way. Andrew and Allison, this is Nicholas Young, fan number 184. I want to say congratulations on 74 fantastic episodes. You have been wonderful. A source for beer news and, honestly, a force for getting me outside of the normal space that I inhabit. It's not an easy feat to get me to go out and try something new. I typically stay home, drink the beers that I know I like. I just finished fantastic glass of Metropolitan and their Dynamo Copper Lager. So I, I know what I like, but you've encouraged me to go out and try new things. When I got the news this week that WBEZ was canceling Strange Brews, I admit I felt a real strong twinge of sadness. I'm going to miss this show. Listening to it every week has been one of the most fantastic things that I have ever experienced in the world of beer. You weren't afraid to tackle the hard issues and bring something truly unique to the world of beer journalism and beer podcasting. So thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see what you do next, whether with the support of WBEZ or without. Cheers, my friends. Aww. Well, we're blushing, Nicholas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we can't wait to see what happens next. And um, again, it's the curiosity and passion of 
all the beer lovers just like you who have listened to and supported the podcast that made this possible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're not alone, Nicholas, um, in saying that we brought something unique to beer journalism because the North American Beer Writers Guild agreed again this year that we are the best beer podcast uh, in, I guess, North America. And so, yeah, we are happy to be repeat winners of that award. Yes, Um, and congratulate our fellow winners, Tales from the Cask and Beer O'Clock. But, yeah, it's nice to um, end this era of Strange Brews on a high note. So thanks, everybody. Again, tinyletter.com slash beer podcast is where you can sign up to make sure you know what we do next. Um, Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew Gill. And I'm at Allison Cuddy. Strange Brews is a production of WBEZ Chicago Public Media. You can like us on Facebook at Strange Brews Pod and use the hashtag Strange Brews to get our attention on Twitter. You can subscribe to this and all of our podcasts in iTunes. You can also like WBEZ on Facebook and Twitter at WBEZ. Find more information about this and all of our podcasts at WBEZ.org. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, our world, and beer drinkers like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Cheers. Thanks for everything. Thanks, everybody. Keep on cruising. Now what you gonna do? Strange bro, killing what's inside of you.